Okay, this is Ask Me Anything 11. I'm going to be doing these more often, I think, now. The questions are piling up, and the AMA page is becoming more interactive. There'll be some changes there that I'll tell you about soon. But this episode is occasioned by my needing to say something more complete about the Lawrence Krauss situation than I did at the event in Phoenix. I'll take that at the top. I think that has been posed as a question somewhere. I don't know if it's among the most popular. It's probably buried. There's some thousands on the site. But as many of you know, the day before my recent event in Phoenix with Lawrence Krauss and Matt Dillahunty, a BuzzFeed article dropped alleging all manner of sexual indiscretion against Lawrence. And it was decided literally within a few hours or so, that it would be better if Lawrence did not join us for the event in Phoenix. And so at that event, Matt and I made some opening statements about Lawrence's absence and the elephant in the room. About 15 minutes of that discussion leaked on the internet. Someone posted a cell phone video, which cuts off while we're still talking about it. So there's an incomplete record of my views there. So I just want to make sure all of you know what I was thinking and what I am thinking about this. First, some generic things to say. I have known Lawrence for many years. I've been to many conferences with him. I've done a few live events with him. And I have never seen him misbehave. So there was nothing that I ever encountered directly that concerned me. When this BuzzFeed article came out, there were many things that were obvious about it that suggested that we shouldn't rush to accept all of these allegations. First, it was BuzzFeed. That's not to say that BuzzFeed can't break a real story, but BuzzFeed is on the continuum of journalistic integrity and unscrupulousness, somewhere toward the unscrupulous side. I know what it's like to be defamed in journals of that sort, Salon, Alternet, These are not websites that are especially assiduous in how they fact-check. It was also clear from the article that there was a a none-too-hidden agenda to deliver a more global attack on the atheist community. There was a link, for instance, alleging my racism, linking to a completely spurious article that was just an exercise in quote-mining that Glenn Greenwald put on the Guardian blog. And there were many other indications that this wasn't all about Lawrence. This was yet another attack on atheism and secularism. There were a couple of people cited in the article who I know to be totally unethical, and one is probably a psychopath. These are people who have made it their full-time job to destroy the reputations of prominent atheists. So there are reasons to be cautious in accepting this BuzzFeed piece. But nonetheless, it purported to present the testimony, much of which was anonymous, of many women who claimed to have been victimized to one or another degree by Lawrence. So, on the where there's smoke, there's often fire principle, it is very hard to dismiss something like this. And I didn't dismiss it. But I didn't feel that all of us should be required to render a judgment on it 24 hours later on stage in front of 3,000 people. So my decision not to share the stage with Lawrence that night 
was not prejudging the veracity of the piece, but it was based on a sense that there's very likely some truth in it and that it would be bad for me and Matt to be on stage accepting his blanket denials and then pretending to move on to other topics. We decided it was best that Lawrence not join us. Lawrence, in the end, saw the wisdom of that decision. There was no reason for him to be hostage to the news cycle and have to respond that very night. So we did the event and said a few generic things about the Me Too movement and then moved on in a way that we wouldn't have been able to had Lawrence been on the stage with us. So, generically, BuzzFeed is terrible. There were certainly signs of bad faith in the article. And it's just a fact that I'm not in a position to judge the truth of such allegations. As I said, I've never seen Lawrence do anything untoward, but the fact that there's this much chatter about how he's behaved is certainly a cause for concern. And I can say in the aftermath of this article, I have since heard from people who have not gone on the record, who did not want to be a source for any public allegation about Lawrence, but who assure me that these kinds of stories are true. So I can offer no defense of Lawrence here. And the only other thing I'll say is that it's highly relevant to me to distinguish gradations of sexual misbehavior. And when I see an article like the one in BuzzFeed, that didn't seem inclined to make those distinctions. They talked about actions that were essentially assaults in the same breath as behavior that really was nothing other than an inept attempt to flirt, right? Complimenting somebody in a way that they found undesirable. If you're not going to make those distinctions, it's very hard to take even the serious allegations seriously. So, Not knowing the full range of his misbehavior, I really can't offer any defense of Lawrence. But this is something that we have to be very careful about because it is easy to just destroy people's reputations based on mere allegation. And I say this as somebody who has been on the receiving end of this kind of thing, not for anything like sexual harassment, but charges of racism based on my criticism of Islam. Those are everywhere. And If people could have made those stick, they would have. They'll try again tomorrow to do that. I feel very cautious in accepting this kind of thing, but these kinds of allegations are different. These are individual people claiming that another person did certain things to them. That leaves much less scope for delusion and bias than judging whether or not somebody's views are are racist, say. So I certainly don't accept everything that's been said about Lawrence at face value, but there's enough there to worry me. And that is not something that I could have said before the BuzzFeed article broke, and it's not something that I could have said on stage that night in Phoenix. But subsequent communication has pushed me into this place. And I'll leave it at that. More generally on the Me Too movement, and this is something I did say in Phoenix, I'm certainly biased toward believing all women who say that a guy was creepy, right? I mean, that is my bias. And I have to correct for that bias in ways so as to give someone a presumption of innocence before more facts are in, which in certain cases is only decent to do. Again, I think it's hugely important to distinguish the ends of the continuum here, the 
Harvey Weinsteins and Bill Cosbys of the world, from the Louis C.K.'s of the world, from the Aziz Ansari's of the world. I mean, there is a continuum here that stretches from true criminality and rape, right, for which people should spend decades in prison, to sexual and interpersonal pathology that doesn't entail any real coercion of people necessarily, to bad dates and bad flirting and semi-autistic behavior, to just frank misunderstandings. It stretches all the way to cases where, had the guy been desirable to the woman, his behavior would have totally passed as flattery and successful flirting. But because he was undesirable, it was viewed as unwanted attention and in some cases as being classed as a kind of assault or a kind of harassment. I have no idea how single people are going to navigate this space in the workplace and at conferences. This seems now incredibly fraught, and we should all want to find some more adult way to navigate these waters. I'm going to have Barry Weiss, I believe, on the podcast soon. She's written some very intelligent pieces in the New York Times about this. And uh, Rebecca Traster, who's sort of on the other side here, who has said some fairly uncompromising things in favor of Me Too and and the, the more aggressive positions in the movement. She's been invited on the podcast. She knows the door is open. And others, Masha Gessen, Claire Berlinski. But the general principle is there's clearly a spectrum here that we have to recognize. And to not recognize it is to do real injustice. And the injustice is not merely to men who are falsely accused of reprehensible behavior. The injustice is to the women who are the real victims of the most reprehensible behavior. And that behavior is being summarized in the same sentence with truly innocuous misunderstandings. That's not good for anybody. So let's have words mean what they mean. Words like rape and sexual assault and harassment and groping. These words have meanings. And sex you regret is not rape. Two people can consent and still feel that it was a terrible mistake to have done so. Okay, that is its own sort of problem. It's not equivalent at all to the guy who jumps out of the bushes with a knife and rapes you. Let's speak carefully about these things. So anyway, you'll hear more from me as I solicit the opinions of women who are really focused in this area, and uh, those will be their own podcasts. And finally, as to what happens with Lawrence going forward, I can only hope that he makes some appropriate and honest mea culpa. I don't know what form that should take, but saying that it's all lies is almost certainly not going to work for him, because it's almost certainly not true. Anyway, I hope he finds some way to redeem himself, and I hope the worst allegations against him are not true. I simply know enough to want to step away from the whole business, which I will do now. Okay, now to your questions. Could you consider creating a section on your website dedicated to making guest requests? That way they don't end up in the AMA section and you can better view both. Yes, we are in the process of doing that. Currently, you can send an email through the 
the appropriate contact form to suggest a podcast guest, and we've been getting many of those, but we're in the process of refining the Ask Me Anything page, and we will build a page that allows you to suggest guests and vote on those suggestions, and we'll build a page that allows you to ask questions not just of me for an AMA, but for an upcoming guest. So I can announce that Deepak Chopra is coming on the podcast, or Brian Green, or Masha Gessen, or somebody, and you can pose questions in advance and vote those up, and I'll take those into consideration as I prepare for that interview. So that is to come, and there'll be more that we'll be doing to um, improve the subscriber experience on the website. And any suggestions you have, again, you should feel more than welcome to send our way. And emailing info at samharris.org is the best way to do that. Who are the philosophers that have inspired you most? I've mentioned some in previous podcasts. Derek Parfit, I think, was a true genius, and Reasons and Persons is really a philosophical masterpiece. Unfortunately, I have not actually read his final book on morality, his three-volume, What Matters. I am told it is almost entirely in agreement with the view I sketched out in The Moral Landscape. I think he's a moral realist of a very familiar sort to me, so I look forward to reading that. But unfortunately, I missed an opportunity to do an interview with Derek. We were in touch by email just before he died, and he agreed to do a a written interview. And I was gearing up to do that, only to hear that he had died. True missed opportunity, because he really was someone who I, I greatly admired. Other philosophers, there have been so many. Some have been very valuable to me because I didn't agree with them. I've also mentioned one of those before, Richard Rorty. He, um, was teaching at Stanford when I went back to finish my degree, and I took many courses with him just to get a chance to debate with him about philosophy. So whatever the course ostensibly was about, William James or Nietzsche or Foucault or whatever, pragmatism, I just wanted to engage with Rorty because he was such a wealth of information, and his core view of pragmatism was something I found truly objectionable. So I got many chances to spar with him about all that and found it hugely valuable. And he was never less than gracious, despite the fact that he had someone who was disagreeing with him about his most cherished opinions in every conversation. That had to have been frustrating. I'm still convinced that he was mistaken, but he was an amazingly patient and generous interlocutor during all that. He even wrote me a letter to graduate school, which is fairly surprising given that, again, I was telling him he was wrong all the time. Other philosophers, I found William James, the one of the fathers of pragmatism, very useful. Bertrand Russell, Wittgenstein. I've read Nietzsche with pleasure. I've learned a lot from many people whose Overall, philosophy is something you can't really defend now. I mean, you can't adopt Plato's view of the world as your own in the 21st century. But still, it's extremely useful to work your way through these great works at any point in your life. 
because so many ideas and epistemological and ethical problems are still worth thinking through from first principles, and people have been attempting that for thousands of years. There have also been many Eastern philosophers who are really more practitioners of meditation, contemplatives, but they get, they get described as philosophers who have been very formative in, in how I think about certain experiences I've had in meditation or just the way consciousness appears to me now based on having looked into the matter for all these years. People like Nagarjuna and Shankaracharya and Longchenpa, these are not really best thought of as philosophers. These are people who, whose philosophy is really entirely a matter of making rational sense of meditative experience. Also, I found in the philosophy of mind, David Chalmers and John Searle and Thomas Nagel. I don't agree with these guys about everything, but their take on the, the primacy of consciousness as a datum has been very influential on the field and diametrically opposed to the kind of emphasis that my friend Dan Dennett or people like Paul and Pat Churchland would make. There have been many philosophers who have helped shape my view of the world, but most of the positions I espouse are not ones that I feel that I have received unchanged from anyone in particular. I've taken pieces here and there that have been useful, but for the most part, I've arrived at my view of most things, like free will, and moral realism, and the conceptual irreducibility of consciousness. I came to all of those views on my own in virtually every sense, just by thinking about it and reading and reacting to the relevant philosophy and science. And some of the philosophers I've just mentioned have books that I recommend on my website, so you can find more information there on, under the recommended section. Since becoming a listener, I've started meditating. However, my experience as a beginner seems to contradict those you've described about losing your sense of self. The more I pay attention, the more I feel like I'm in fact sitting behind my eyes. I'm just aware of it more as I pay attention to the breath and other sensations. Did you have this experience when you began meditating? Uh, yes, I did, and, and virtually everybody does. That is the, the starting point of view that everyone has by default. You're walking through your life feeling like a subject in the head, and when you begin to meditate, when you begin to strategically try to pay attention to the breath or anything else, you start from that point of being a, a locus of attention that is now trying to focus as though from some point in the head to an object like the breath. And once you develop enough concentration, so that you can pay attention to something, the breath or anything else, then you can begin to use that concentration to interrogate whether this starting presumption is in fact a valid one. It isn't, in the end. That is discoverable, but it can take some real doing to do that. And without concentration and mindfulness, without an ability to distinguish raw attention from attention bound up in thought. You just don't have the tools by which to inquire in that way. So all I can do is encourage you to persist. This is a 
a training, and it is something that you're very unlikely to be able to do immediately. It's not that in principle it's impossible to do immediately, but it's just the odds are against it. I mean, it's a little bit like, like I use the analogy of golf a lot. I'm not quite sure why. It's in some ways is a bad one, but if you've never played golf before, there's no real sense of just how much training would go into it to do it well. And it's certainly not impossible that you walk up to the tee the first time and hit a perfect 300-yard drive. It doesn't take some incredible strength. It just takes the right body mechanics. And the ball is just sitting there. It's not moving. And there's no real reason, certainly no reason based on the laws of physics, why your first swing can't be perfect. But in reality, you are very unlikely to do that. The number of people who've done that first time around probably can be counted on one hand. And even if you do get lucky, you're unlikely to be able to repeat that feat. So what you need to do is acquire all of the very fine-grained distinctions that you know, ultimately become unconscious that allow you to pay attention in a certain way. And in the end, it is as simple. In fact, it's simpler than hitting a golf ball. But it can require no less training to do well. That's just a, an unlucky fact of the situation we're all in. But of that more later, I am busily working on an app that will contain everything I have to say on that subject. And much meditation instruction as well. So, soon coming. How does intelligence correlate with well-being? For example, do you think my dog is in a better place than I am most of the time? Well, depending on the dog and depending on where you are, certainly possible. Well, to speak of people first, I think the correlation between intelligence and well-being is not especially strong, as far as I know. I mean, there's some correlation. There has to be, because intelligence does tend to close the door to some very bad outcomes in life. As you increase intelligence, the likelihood that you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison goes way down. The likelihood that you're going to lead a life of criminality and violence, and all of that goes down. Your health tends to be better. You tend to make more money. Many good things in life are more easily achieved if you're smart. But there are many very smart, very unhappy people in the world. So the correlation is not especially strong. I, I don't have any literature at my fingertips to cite here, but as far as what I recall from reading in the past, it's correlated, but there's much more to being smart than being happy, and there's much more to being happy than being smart, no doubt. And ultimately, well-being trumps intelligence, in my view, which means on some level, you begin to ask, what is intelligence good for? And I think satisfying our intellectual curiosity is a component of well-being. I think it's the kind of thing that is incredibly gratifying to some people. These aren't completely separate concerns, and obviously one's well-being is affected by 
one's ability to get what one wants out of life and not waste time and not encounter perpetual frustration. And intelligence can be very helpful there. But these are separate faculties. And you can certainly be very smart and not at all wise. And wisdom, I think, is the, is the most important variable here. And wisdom I would define as it really comes down to not suffering unnecessarily. It's a kind of intelligence in the end, but it's the intelligence that allows you to discriminate between types of behavior and relationships and attitudes and modes of attention that incline you toward deeper and deeper forms of well-being and satisfaction and a felt sense of meaningful engagement with your life. That's wisdom, and that's, again, it, it presupposes a certain kind of intelligence. It's part of the, the spectrum of intelligence, but it's not merely a matter of having a high IQ. Frankly, I'm not sure how much wisdom and intelligence would be correlated in the end. I think if you're of average intelligence, you could be incredibly wise, and if you have an IQ that is four standard deviations above the norm, you might be a fool in every way that counts. And as for other species, I don't know what sort of well-being a dog might experience. They often seem pretty content, but the range of experience they have is obviously quite limited. And so I think there's, there's something to be said for broadening the range and deepening the feelings of satisfaction. There's something about being totally satisfied with a very narrow experience that most of us would deem less than perfectly desirable. I don't know that I have a deep argument as to why that is valid. I can certainly imagine some experience of bliss without a lot of content, or really any content other than bliss. There's certainly drug experiences and meditative states that attest to this possibility. But you can't build a world out of that state of mind. So at minimum, your dog needs someone to get the dog food. And presumably that's you. So there's a bigger project involved than just securing a very narrow state of satisfaction. I'd like to know how you think highly addictive and often destructive drugs such as heroin, cocaine, and meth should be dealt with by society. Should they be legalized despite all the harm they cause? Yes, I think they should be legalized because the greatest harms are the result not of the drugs but of their illegality. All the harm attributed to organized crime, all the violence, all the insanity that happens in countries like Mexico and Colombia, that is the result of the economics of the situation. The economics are entirely dependent on the illegality. The profit margins in a black market are insane. And in fact, many drugs are made more potent as a result of being illegal, so that they can be more easily smuggled. So you have something like fentanyl, which, as my friend Andrew Sullivan has just written beautifully about in New York Magazine, I think it's seven grains, literally the equivalent of seven grains of salt is the effective dose. And 
something like 10 or 12 grains is the lethal one, right? So the difference between getting off and killing yourself on this drug is minuscule. And yet we're talking about something that is so potent, it'll always be easy to smuggle into a country because you need so little of it. We have to decriminalize drugs. And we should have learned this lesson with the prohibition of alcohol over 100 years ago. That gave us what we now call organized crime. And the same dynamic is true for drugs like marijuana and cocaine and everything else. The way to correct for the problem of people abusing drugs and taking the wrong ones is education and to make certain dangerous behaviors illegal. You know, driving drunk is already illegal. We can articulate to ourselves the problem with alcohol without criminalizing alcohol. And we could do the same with marijuana insofar as it can be a problem. We can do the same with with psychedelics like LSD, which can be problematic for people, but can also be very useful. There are other drugs which I really can't ever see a reason to take, so people can be educated about the differences among drugs and really need to be. I just think it's a matter of more information and medical intervention, psychological intervention, sociological intervention. People need meaningful lives and sources of well-being that are not pathological. And criminalizing some of these bad options doesn't make them less available. It just makes them more potent. It surrounds them with a chaos of violence and criminality. You have the the violence of those who are protecting their turf. You have the criminality of those who commit petty crimes so as to pay for their fixes because these drugs are so expensive. Making these things illegal has not solved the problem and made it much worse. So it's pretty clear in which direction daylight is, and we should move there with all due speed as a society. What are your thoughts on Stoicism, such as its parallels with Buddhism and its application to modern life? How do you see Stoicism's central principle of choosing our reactions to external events in the context of free will? So I think Stoicism is quite valuable, and I've read philosophers like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius with pleasure. I hadn't read them early in life, and I hadn't read them when I was spending a lot of time on retreat and studying Buddhism, so the parallels with Buddhism are only things that I've discovered kind of after the fact. But yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in Stoicism, and this choice to react in certain ways and not others to adversity, that's like any other choice. It's not something that requires free will. It just requires the influence of one thought or one conversation or one idea on another and on your subsequent attitudes and emotional reactions and behavior. So if you read the the meditations of Marcus Aurelius and his views about when and how you should become angry or not influence you, well then it will influence you by framing those moments where you're tempted to become angry differently. You'll remember the thing you read that seemed so useful. And that's not a matter of free will. It's just a matter of you being influenced. 
but I, I do think the the stoical framing of many of these things, the way they think about things like wealth and death and distraction and conflict and having enemies and all of that is incredibly useful. And in the end, it is a kind of wisdom that allows you to choose to emphasize certain facts over others and thereby change the way you feel. You can decide to see the good in people rather than the bad. Most people have ample good for you to consider and ample bad, but you could decide to pay more attention looking at the good. That would have a consequence. Again, it's not a matter of free choice. It's a matter of the mechanics of thinking and attending and the influence that thoughts and attention have on our emotional lives. But by all means, read the Stoics. They are good company. For the last year, I've been listening to a lot of Jordan Peterson's material, and I'm in the process of finishing his program titled Past and Future Authoring. I find Peterson's material and programs valuable and interesting. I think he's doing important work, especially for young men, even though there is something about his material that doesn't feel right. I have a hard time articulating exactly what that is. Then the questioner seems to reference that I've said that I agree with 90% of what Peterson says, but 10% is bullshit, and he wants me to talk about that. Well, I have these events coming up with Jordan, and that really will be the best time to hash this out. I think, generally speaking, I see how much value people are finding in what Peterson is saying. It's not a mystery to me why that would be. In many respects, he's he's giving a very standard kind of self-help curriculum with more moral and political urgency. There's a quasi-religious undertone to it. I see why that's landing with so many people. But I also see, as you seem to feel, that there's a fair amount wrong with it, or at least it's not grounded in a careful, intellectually honest analysis of what we have good reason to believe and what we have good reason to reject. So I think I will save my specific arguments for when I I have to deal with his specific claims when we meet. But I, I just want to emphasize that it's it's a very interesting phenomenon to me. I think it is very consequential. I think he has exposed a hunger for meaning and structure in the secular community that I sensed was there, but never really saw this clearly. And it's not a surprise to me that it's there. It is a bit of a surprise that there are so many people who are eager to imbibe precisely what he's delivering without apparent issue, because this is a kind of religious communication in the end. But I do think that 90% of what he's saying is very interesting and very worthwhile, and it is being vitiated by the other 10%. And it would be nice to strip that out and have a a truly honest and defensible conversation about meaning and values and profundity and the sacred, and even the utility of thinking in terms of myths. It's not that there's nothing there that could potentially be useful, but I just think we need to be honest about what we think is true while we do that. 
Hey, Sam, why do you think so many smart people just don't get your argument about the self and free will? I mean, Dennett, Lawrence Krauss, Matt Dillahunty, the Weinstein brothers, Michael Shermer, and the list goes on. Is it a lack of subjectively experiencing the fact that it's an illusion? Or is it that they just don't see that it actually matters in terms of retribution, compassion, justice, hate, etc.? So they just don't care. Or maybe something else. Also, does it bother you that they don't get it? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. It's something that I have been mystified by. I've had yet another chance to be mystified by it on stage with Sean Carroll. I haven't aired that episode yet. But that was another one of these moments where I felt the conversation was breaking down over a fundamental difference of intuition. There's something that people don't have access to here, and it it does come down to this experience of seeing through the illusion of the self and the illusion of free will directly. But that's not to say it's impossible to dispense with this idea of free will without having this kind of meditative insight. I mean, there are people who have done that. Jerry Coyne agrees with me down the line about free will, but claims to feel that he has it in each moment and I think does not know what I'm talking about when I talk about the illusion of the self. It's possible to think clearly enough about this and see that the concept of free will simply doesn't apply to anything. It's impossible to describe how the world would have to be for people to have the freedom they think they have. It's an empty concept. It's not even wrong. That's the problem with free will, and there, there are many people like Jerry who get that. But generally, it's, it is kind of mysterious to me, and I, I do think it is a kind of failure of introspection. People are not seeing that it's not even a subjective fact about us, and that really does undercut any basis for worrying about this particular philosophical problem. There's just no evidence for it. And you can pay attention to your own mind closely enough so as to see that. And to see that you lose nothing important by seeing that. I mean, that's the amazing thing. The things that people think they will lose, like a basis for loving people, are not in fact in jeopardy here. So it's interesting. It is frustrating at times. But then I realize that none of us actually chooses those moments where we're convinced by an argument or not convinced. The fact that Dan Dennett or anyone else finds my thoughts on this topic unconvincing is as clear a demonstration of their lack of free will as anything. And if they were convinced, again, it would be as much a compulsion in the other direction as one billiard ball hitting another. It's got to be a lack of insight, introspectively that explains why people say the sorts of things they say on this topic. I mean, the, the extreme case recently was when I was talking to Ben Shapiro at our event in San Francisco, where he, like many people before him, was arguing that reason was an example of free will. Like, how could you want to reason with anybody or think reasoning about anything was valid without free will? And this is just a mind-boggling non sequitur to me. It's such a surprising thing to say, and the fact that my analysis of it doesn't work for smart people like Ben also flabbergasts me. I mean, reasoning is precisely the case where free will is least in evidence. If someone shows you a chain of reasoning 
that leads to an unforeseen conclusion, and you arrive there recognizing that each link in the chain is valid, you are helplessly delivered into the arms of that conclusion, despite your preferences. If you add a column of numbers, you don't get to choose what the sum is. If you can add, you have no freedom as to what you put on the other side of that equal sign. Right? So it is with any other clear chain of reasoning. So when someone gives you an argument that convinces you, pay attention to what that's like. Where is the freedom to choose what you believe? And if, if you are exercising something that seems like that sort of freedom, that is exactly what we mean by bias and wishful thinking. You are reasoning most clearly when what you want to be true is playing no role at all in your thinking. Your preferences don't matter when you're reasoning, apart from your preference to be coherent and to not be wrong. So I honestly don't know what to make of someone who would say to me, as Ben did, that reason is an example of a mental operation that presupposes a belief in free will. It's exactly the opposite. If you could have a conversation on your podcast with any person throughout history, who would you choose and why? Oh, well, there are many, many people who would be fascinating to meet. I must say that this came up somewhere. I forget where this was, because I've asked questions like this of podcast guests of late. And I have to say that, surprising as it may sound, Jesus would be very high on my list of people to meet and talk to just to get to the bottom of what it was about him that so fully deranged human history. It would be amazing to discover that, in some sense, all the attention was warranted, and it would be amazing to discover that it wasn't. However ordinary or extraordinary he seemed, it would be fascinating to arrive at the epicenter of, of those historical effects. Far closer to home, Wittgenstein, Bertrand Russell, both of whom I've mentioned above. They would be fascinating people to talk to. Derek Parfit, as I said, I just missed, and that is frustrating. But there are just so many people. Now that I'm on the other side of it, I see it's almost a meaningless question because there are several hundred people I could name in the end, any one of whom could well be my first choice. Okay, long question here about psychedelics. In Waking Up, you describe how your psychedelic experiences went from uniformly pleasant to hellish. You mentioned that you were 20 years old at the time of a challenging LSD trip on a lake in Nepal. Since this precedes your journey into the practice of meditation, I'm curious as to whether you believe that if you were to take psychedelics again, if your acquired skills in meditation, or even simply your accumulated life experiences since then, might assist you if you were to have another challenging experience. Do you think there is something that you now have that you did not have when you were 20, that if you'd had it then, could have allowed you to guide yourself back to manageable territory during the experience? Or do you believe that when faced with a truly harrowing trip, there's not much to do but ride it out, even for those who are experienced meditators? I think for most of us, there's a certain dose of a certain drug that leaves you with very little ability to guide your attention in any way. 
So it's certainly conceivable to me that no matter how much one practices meditation and no matter how good one's set and setting, it's possible to be blown to pieces by a uh, given psychedelic. And then you just have to wait to come down. Of course, as you're coming down and you begin to remember facts like you took a drug and you haven't always been like this and hell has not been created just for you, then you can begin to direct your attention in in certain ways and, and then maybe meditation becomes relevant there. I had been doing a fair amount of practice at that point. I did, as you point out, more practice after that, but I was certainly no novice meditator during some of these trips. That's the thing about psychedelics. In many respects, it is the luck of the draw, and you just can't control all the variables that conspire to make a trip good or bad, or pleasant or unpleasant. So I remain quite respectful of both the good trips and the bad. And if I did psychedelics again, again, it's been many years since I have, it would be with the understanding that negative experiences are possible. I don't know that I will never do a drug like LSD again. I think it's possible that I will. But it's not an accident that I think meditation is the, the more useful tool at this point. Sam, how do you feel about inviting more guests that you disagree with on important topics? In my opinion, there's nothing more educational and interesting than hearing two intellectually honest, intelligent individuals butting heads constructively. Yeah, well, I'll continue to do that from time to time. I feel like I can't do that every time. It just becomes, I don't know, it's, it's so many of these conversations misfire that, and the listener experience is often so punishing that I can say not everyone feels as you do, that those are the best podcasts. I just have to pick my moments, but yeah, I will be inviting people on who I totally disagree with about, at least about the topic under discussion. That will continue, no doubt. Please comment on the morality of a legal system that lets people inherit wealth. As a Western democracy, we have generally rejected the notion that someone should be the king just because his father was the king. Can inherited wealth be distinguished from an inherited kingdom or lordship? First, I should say that I think we should want to redistribute wealth, both from people who are earning enormous sums while alive and upon their death. I think it's, you know, having billions of dollars stuck entirely in one estate doesn't make a lot of sense. But, you know, having half of that also doesn't make a lot of sense necessarily. But you have to draw the line somewhere. And I think it's to not let people acquire a lot of wealth and pass it on to their children is to disincentivize something we want to highly incentivize. And that is the motive to find something very profitable to do for which other people are willing to pay you. Socialism doesn't work. And capitalism is the best thing we've got, at least at the moment. And I think we have to correct for its negative effects by intelligently incentivizing everything that can be incentivized and using government to correct for the things that markets can't accomplish. And redistributing a fair amount of wealth through the tax code, that seems highly desirable to me, but 
the idea that you want to redistribute so much so that the children of wealthy people don't have any advantage, that seems like a bad idea because that is why so many people who are disproportionately productive and innovative continue to work. People want to create wealth that they can pass on to their kids. And the same argument could be used for the earner himself. Why let these rich earners keep any significant amount of what they earn? You know, why not ramp the tax code up to 90% or oblige them to spend everything that they make? It's not an ethic that would incentivize the things we want to see happen in the world, or at least that's the way it seems to me. So I think we, we just have to figure out how to get the balance right. We want as much opportunity as we can give to everyone, wealthy or not. So we want societies where there's massive social mobility. We want societies where there's access to education that's free and healthcare that's free in the end. I think the more wealth we generate as a species, the more the safety net has to look like some sort of utopia. There's no reason why that couldn't be true. We're talking about spreading the fruits of human progress more and more equitably. But you can't discourage innovation and selfish efforts. You have to harness human selfishness. And human selfishness is focused on the self, but in many respects, even to a greater degree, upon one's children. So I think canceling all intergenerational transfers of wealth would almost certainly be a bad thing. But this is an empirical question. And if there were data that suggested it was a good thing, well then, I'm all ears. Hi Sam, Ben Shapiro had a small debate with Dave Rubin about abortion, where he made the popular argument that if it's life at 20 weeks, why isn't it life at 19 weeks? And Dave kind of conceded the point. Do you think the beginning of life is really important when it comes to abortion, considering the fact that scientifically speaking, bacteria and plants are living, yet we don't care that much about them? And if the argument becomes that the fetus will one day be conscious, can't every cell in our body, with gene editing and stem cell technology, also become conscious? It's a fallacious argument to keep walking back in time, because then you, you, there's no bright line between conception and any other stage in pregnancy. Uh, you're just talking about the proliferation of cells, but you know it starts with one cell, and that cell is alive. So it's specious to argue that all of these stages of being are equally valuable, because then you have to say that certain forms of birth control are akin to murder, right? And then you could even you can even walk it back further. You could you could say that not conceiving a child when you could otherwise conceive a child, is preventing the birth of a human being who is every bit as important as any human being that currently exists. So, therefore, you have essentially committed a murder by not having a kid. It's a ridiculous argument. I think it's far more important to consider the capacity for suffering, and that is something that we can't, again, there's, there are no bright lines here. We can't say that a fetus develops the capacity to suffer at 12 weeks on the dot, and therefore there's a real difference between 13 weeks and 11 weeks. And I think, generally, any cutoff 
here will be arbitrary. It can be more or less in the right place, but it will always be and therefore seem arbitrary. But I, I think it, it is a matter of how much suffering we are creating by the procedure and how much suffering we're creating by not allowing women to have control over their reproductive lives and forcing them to take pregnancies to term that they don't want, or in many cases where the developing embryo is unhealthy. If your concern is to mitigate human suffering, I think the bias has to be to let women make these decisions early enough so that any concerns that you're imposing extraordinary suffering on the fetus don't seem that sustainable. They're certainly not sustainable at the one-week stage, which you could arrive at by the same argument that it sounds like Ben used. It's by no means a trivial ethical problem, and it's certainly no mystery why people would worry about abortion from an ethical perspective, but you just have to recall what the world was like when abortion was illegal, right? And people still felt the need to terminate pregnancies that they didn't want. That's not a world that we should be eager to return to. I think it was Bill Clinton or some political hack who said that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. And that sounds about right to me, frankly. It should certainly be safe, and it should be legal, and it should be rare, and it should be early. And again, the point in pregnancy that we decide is too late, that will always be somewhat arbitrary, unless we have some sort of perfect consciousness scanner that can be applied to a pregnancy, which is a long way off, no doubt. Okay, well, I think I'll leave it there. Again, if you have suggestions for things you'd like to see in the subscriber-only pages of my website, we are more than happy to hear them. Those should be sent to info at samharris.org. But in the coming weeks, we'll be rolling out some new features here, and I look forward to having you all kick the tires, and please let me know what's working and what isn't. And again, as always, thank you for supporting the podcast. It is a real honor to have you listening.